Let's pray. Father, we bless you. God, you are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. God, we are uh, grateful, Lord Jesus, that you came to seek and save the lost. And Lord Jesus, we look forward to your return when you come to judge the living and the dead, to set uh, all things right, to bring us all your children into your glorious presence where we can um, enjoy um, pleasures forevermore. And God, we just, uh, we long for that day. So, Spirit of God, would you be with me today as I um, open your word, and would you uh, soften um, hearts to receive it uh, for your glory and for our good. And God's people said, amen. Good to see you all again here in person, and good to see you all on online. As we uh, head into James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we've got two more weeks after this. Stephen Atherton will be preaching next Sunday, and I'll finish it off the Sunday after that. And then we're going to be heading into four weeks of Titus, just to kind of give you a heads up where we're headed, which I'm just, I'm jazzed about. We're actually going to have our four pastors, leadership institute guys uh, preaching um, through Titus here in just a few weeks. But the task at hand today is to uh, walk through, ti- or t- walk through Titus, walk through James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And I've titled the sermon, the, the Deceitful Trap of Wealth, The Deceitful Trap of Wealth. James wrote this convicting and encouraging letter to Christians who are in the midst of trials of various kinds. We haven't talked about that much, but this is important to know who our audience is, that this is an audience that has trials of various kinds, much like you and I. The last time I looked, there are uh, trials of various kinds um, at um, (laughs) at our beckoning, whether we want them or not. There's a theme that runs through this, uh, in the entire convicting book, and it's an encouragement for believers to have a faith that works, a faith that stumbles forward, loving God and loving people. Last week, James admonished Christians, like you and I, who made plans for their tomorrows without considering the right view of success, the right view of life, and the right view of God. James reminded us that a right view of success is, is, um, is when we don't know if our plans will be successful and we hold them loosely. So having a right view of success is, is um, holding our plans loosely and not knowing that they'll be successful. Having a right view of life reminds us that we don't know if we'll even be alive in order to enjoy the fruit of our plants. So remember death and live today like there's no tomorrow. And then finally, have a right view of God, which reminds us to make plans in accordance to God's revealed will while trusting our plans to His sovereign will. Oftentimes, our plans, at least I know my plans, can be driven solely by what we want rather than what God wants for us. When we pursue our plans at any cost, it's typically because of what we are seeking. And it's usually not God when we ignore His plans to go after our plans. It's usually pleasure, happiness, or fulfillment in God's gifts rather than in the giver of all good gifts. You know, there's been times in my life where I've been duped into thinking I could create a world for myself where there's lasting pleasure and happiness that's found um, just in God's creation. 
All of the things that I thought would satisfy my insatiable desire for happiness fell short of their promise to make me happy. It's like an addiction. The more that I wanted and the more that I gained, the more that I wanted again. You see, it is possible, though, um, praise be to God, to find pleasure in God's creation. There are so many good gifts to enjoy this side of eternity. And some of those good gifts are in this room. And some of the good gifts are, are on the front range as we look at the mountains and the beautiful weather that we get to enjoy. The pleasure of, of, of uh, seeing babies born and to see kids growing up. However, ultimate pleasure and delight are found in living for and delighting in the creator of all good gifts. So today I've got three questions for you. Three questions I want you to consider as we're going through this. The first question is, is do you live as you should or are you living as you could? And I'll explain that. Second question is, do you prioritize people over pleasure? Third, do you use your wealth for blessing or for besting? And we'll talk about that. In today's passage, James continues his letter to Christians, but he changes his tactic a little bit. While speaking to believers, he primarily speaks about unbelievers in this little section of Scripture. So let me lay out for you the purpose of this section, why James is writing it, and who he's writing to. Number one, James gives a prophetic warning to the unrighteous rich while not speaking to them directly. So he's given a warning to those rich people who do not know Jesus, but he's not speaking directly to them. The New Testament scholar Douglas Moo says this. He says, James' style here is that of the prophets pronouncing doom on pagan nations. He unrelievedly attacks these people with no hint of direct exhortation. Secondly, this warning that he gives to the unrighteous rich um, gives hope to believers, particularly poor believers who are experiencing um, mistreatment from the rich unbelievers. And James's purpose here is not to teach the ungodly rich about the error of their ways, but to show his Christian readers um, who are on the receiving end of, end of an injustice of what God thinks of this injustice. And number three, he instructs rich believers on how to properly think of wealth. That's for you and I. He, he is going to, um, he's going to instruct us on how to properly think of wealth. He cautions you and I as believers to not to live as unbelievers and fall for the deceitful trap of seeking after and accumulating wealth. Calvin says this. He says, James has a regard to the faithful, you and I, Christians, that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune. So hearing these oracles would show God's people, you and I, why we are neither to fear nor to copy the unrighteous rich that are around us. So the New Testament, in the New Testament, the, the condemnation of wealthy people is almost always contributed to the misuse of wealth. Um, the, the New Testament doesn't ta say that it's wrong to be wealthy. It talks about the misuse of, of being wealthy. Verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl or wail for the miseries that are coming upon you. Happy Fourth of July. 
Are you talking to me? He's not talking to me. And if you know Jesus, he's not talking directly to you. You're not the rich that he's talking about, although there is a lesson for us here today. He's pronouncing judgment on the unrighteous or the unbelieving rich of this world, those whose God is their wealth. So how do we know this? Okay, Dan, that's great. Make a case for it. First, at no point anywhere in this section are the rich people addressed as brothers or sisters or fellow believers. And these are terms that James has used throughout the entire book, brothers and sisters, believers. Second, there's no call for repentance here. He's not calling them to turn from their error. He's simply and profoundly pronouncing judgment on these rich unbelievers. Third, James speaks in the tones of Old Testament prophets. Weep and howl. Weep and wail. These are frequently used by the prophets to describe the reaction of the wicked when the day of the Lord comes. In fact, wail is, or howl is found only in the prophets of the Old Testament. It always refers to the context of judgment. Isaiah 13.6 is an example. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. So the background makes clear that the misery that is coming on these rich unbelievers refers not to earthly temporal suffering, but to the condemnation and punishment that God will pronounce on them at the day of judgment, when Jesus comes back again. For believers, Jesus is coming back. That's the best news that we can anticipate. It'll be a homecoming for us. We will be welcomed to our eternal home with a wedding feast, and we will forever be in the presence and the glory of Jesus where there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more sin, and there'll be no more death. Come, Lord Jesus, come. But this day of judgment will bring eternal miseries upon the unrighteous rich. James says this. He says that they ought to weep and wail because of the miseries that are coming upon them. If they don't turn and delight in Jesus rather than delighting in their wealth, they will weep and wail for all of eternity. Now in verses 2 through 6, James will explain the trap that they're being judged for. Wealth alone, as I said, is not the issue, but rather what is done and not done, not, and not done with the wealth. So even though this section is not speaking to all who have wealth, but it's speaking to the unrighteous rich, take heed, believer, because Scripture warns that wealth can be a trap to the Christian as well. It's been a trap in my life many times throughout my life. James is going to show us three traps or warning signs that wealth has become an idol in our life. Hoarding, injustice, and extravagance. And then once again, we're going to consider three principles. As we look at hoarding, we're going to ask the question, am I living as I should, not as I could? As we look at injustice, we're going to ask the question, am I prioritizing people over pleasure? As we look at extravagance, we're going to ask the question, is, um, am I using wealth for blessing or for besting? Verse 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. 
Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. James gives these metaphors to illustrate the evil of hoarding or laying up earthly treasure for the benefit of more pleasure and more power and more protection. It's accumulating stuff for the sake of having more, building bigger houses and having more storage units just to be able to accommodate and store more possessions and more wealth. James shows us that to pursue wealth just for its own sake is ungodly and it's unrighteous. What is stored up testifies against us. For it exposes the sinfulness of the human heart that needlessly acquired all of it. He says your riches have rotted. This refers to the fleeting nature of all forms of human endeavors and possessions. Then he talks about gold and silver corroding. Even though gold and silver will never corrode or rust, he gives us a picture of the accumulation of riches being stored up so long that they corrode, they have no value at the end of life. You know, wealth looks beautiful. You know, I used to get the Rob Report magazine. I used to watch the show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous and always thought that that looked attractive until I started understanding the cost to follow Jesus. Again, wealth isn't bad. It's what we do with that wealth that... that um, that James is calling out. Wealth looks beautiful from heaven's perspective, but from heaven's perspective, it's all rotting and it's corroding, and those who store it up are in fact worshiping the idol of wealth. So James tells us the unrighteous rich who at the end of their life have stored up wealth for themselves will be judged, and they'll be sentenced to an eternity of torment and separation from God. What's the evidence? It's all that they've hoarded up at the expense of others. Jesus has a ton to say about this topic, if you haven't noticed. Listen to the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, Hmm, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all of my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? All this stuff in the barn, what's it for? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Jesus taught in Matthew 6 not to lay up treasures on earth, but to lay up treasures in heaven. This simply and powerfully means that we're to remember that everything we have is a gift from the Lord. 
And all good gifts are to be used for the glory of God and for the good of other people. He went on to say that where our treasure is, there are what? Our heart will be also. Calvin reminds us of the gravity of the situation. He says, God has not appointed gold for rust, nor garments for moths. But on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life. Principle number one, don't hoard. Live as you should, not as you could. Principle number two, prioritize people over pleasure. James speaks to the injustice of rich people that prioritize profit over people. And let me say, for you note-takers, let me say principle number two again. It's prioritize people over profit, not pleasure. Profit. Verse number four. Behold, the wages of the laborers are who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. They're crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I want to make this clear. James isn't necessarily advocating for unions here or that they raise the minimum wage from one denarii to 1.5 denarii. Instead, what he's doing is he's condemning the rich for taking advantage of the poor workers. The rich who see their employees or slaves as a means to an end, rather than seeing them as fellow human beings made in the image of God. In this particular case, James is condemning the unrighteous rich who withhold or delay or underpay their workers the wages that they've earned. We like watching real-life movies. I like watching documentaries. I like reading books about um, history or or historical fiction. And there's a couple of movies that we've watched in the last couple of years. Um, One is Social Network about Mark Zuckerberg who started Facebook. And the other is uh, called The Founder, which is the Ray Kroc story. Um, And what you see in those movies, and we see it all throughout history, where company founders build their companies at the expense of other people. That other people are walked on so that they can create their wealth. There's a long list of company executives. I was in the brokerage business for 20 years. Remember the old Mike Milliken days or the DLJ days. Some of this might sound familiar to some of you. But there were company after company that, were, that were, uh, took investor money. And then they built the company and then they drove it into bankruptcy so that those who built it could take their money and all the poor employees walk away with nothing. That's what James is talking about here. And those of us who enjoy the comparative wealth of the United States, particularly living living here in northern Colorado, we might want to reflect on our responsibility as consumers, to maybe maybe think about the kinds of companies we're supporting and how they treat their workers in impoverished countries around the world. Um, Full disclosure, I don't do that. But it just made me think, like they're just because um, I'm, you know, buying this shirt from Untucked or my shoes from Kohan or my jeans from where, from Salvation Army, I'm like, I never think about who's making them. And I should probably think about that. Have you ever thought about the products you buy in the stores you shop? Do they treat 
their employees fairly. Many of you made, have made decisions, rightly so, not to shop at certain stores because of the transgender bathroom policies. But how many of us are aware of potential injustice in the way their products are being made or how their employees are being treated? Just something to think about. Prophets like Jeremiah and, and Amos and Malachi condemn those who exploited the poor and the vulnerable. Jeremiah, for example, in 22.13 says this, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness, and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing, and does not give him his wages. The Old Testament law required fair wages be, fair wages be paid in a timely manner, Le Leviticus 19.13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. Pay him when the money's due. So while James is throwing down this coming judgment on the unrighteous rich and warning these people not to fall and warning us, as Christians, not to fall into the trap of seeing workers as a means to their end. He then brings comfort to the workers who are being treated um, uh, unjustly by their employer. He says this, And the cries of the harvesters reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This reminds us that the Lord sees and hears everything. Even the quiet cry of a poor worker at the end of a long workday, lamenting the unfair pay and wondering how he or she will make ends meet. And who will hear and defend his or her case? Well, the Lord will. No one else, no one else may notice or care, but God sees. He understands. He promises to act. The unpaid wages cry out to him. The cries of the harvesters reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts, or, or the Lord of, of heaven's armies, is a picture of God as a warrior going to battle against his enemies. In the same way he won the battles for Israel, Yahweh is the Christian's defender. Our battles belong to him. He sees the injustice of the unrighteous rich. He sees and cares for all injustice, and one day, whatever you're experiencing, whether you're on the, on the end of injustice here, you're being treated unpoorly, or treated poorly, excuse me, um, he hears you, and he sees you. And he will one day rescue us from all that is evil in this world. Paul has a word for this. He has a word for all who are receiving on the receiving end of injustice. Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's what James is talking about here. The battle isn't ours. It's the Lord's. So James condemns the unrighteous rich for the injustice of taking advantage of their employees and seeing them as a means to their end, rather than seeing them and treating them as those made in the image of God. So principle number two, prioritize people over profit. And now we see in verses five through six, principle number three, wealth is for blessing and not besting. James is going to call out the sin of extravagance in verses five and six. 
He says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. By the way, like if I was going to pick a passage to preach, I would never pick this one. We're going through the book of James. Just like I had to be remind myself of that. But it's all truth. It's God's word. It's where we're at. And he's got something for each of us today. James here in verses 5 and 6 continues to bring evidence that will convict and condemn the unrighteous rich to eternal miseries while warning you and I of the trap of wealth. Luxury alone is not the sin. We live in luxury in northern Colorado. Compared to the rest of the world, having a house and two cars and have your kids in a Christian school or whatever you choose, we live in luxury as Pat reminded us that for whatever reason, whether it be a curse or a blessing, we've been born into luxury. Self-indulgence is the sin. And self-indulgence is an excessive or unrestrained gratification of one's own appetites, desires, or whims. It's a picture here of the rich indulging themselves with anything and everything they want with little or no thought of the needs of others. That's a key. It's not just indulging themselves in whatever they want, but without, uh, without giving any care to the needs of others. James makes his point with a very disturbing illustration. They fatten their hearts in a day of slaughter. In the same way that unsuspecting cattle are taken to the feedlot for a final fattening before they're slaughtered. The day of the Lord is coming where all the unrighteous rich will be judged and slaughtered and they won't know what hit them. The more the rich, unrighteous person self-indulges in the accumulation of wealth, the fatter his heart becomes with pride, wanting to preserve and protect all that he's seeking pleasure from. His heart is getting fatter while his neighbors and workers and others have little. James is probably not talking about the rich man literally murdering the other person. But living in luxury in self-indulgent luxury while continuing to indulge a heart in whatever brings this rich man pleasure with no thought of the economic or physical condition of other people around him is as shocking and devastating as murder. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke 16, 19 through 31, because I'm going to just spend the final five or so minutes here. And I want you to listen to the parable of the rich man in Lazarus. In verse 19 of Luke 16, Jesus starts his parable by saying, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. That's called extravagance. The rich man is introduced without a name. And he's introduced as one who literally wears his wealth on his sleeve. He's clothed in purple and fine linen. And he has no temporal needs. He feasted sumptuously every day. Verse 20 and 21. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, 
who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This poor man, Lazarus, is covered with sores and sits at the rich man's gate, apparently close enough for him to see the food that he can't have, but far enough that the rich man can safely ignore him. The rich man clearly ignores the need at his doorstep. Only the dogs see the need. With their licks, they seemingly provide relief to the man's open source. Calvin again asks this question. What could be more monstrous than to see the dogs taking charge of a man to whom his neighbor is paying no attention? And what is more, to see the very crumbs of bread refused to a man perishing of hunger while the dogs are giving him the service of their tongues for the purpose of healing his sores. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. It's a picture of heaven, by the way. And the rich man also was buried. Notice that the rich man had a burial. The poor man was probably discarded. In verse 23, and in Hades, don't get caught up on Hades. It's not important here whether it be a temporal place or a final place, but it is a place of torment. It's not heaven. It's a place of eternal torment. And in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, the rich man, and saw Abraham far off and and Lazarus with him at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And what's happening here is the rich man unwittingly condemns himself by using Lazarus' name. And if he knows him now in Hades, he must have knew him then when he was sitting at his front porch starving with open sores. And he ignored him. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. And Lazarus, in a like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here. And you are there in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Right here, brothers and sisters, are these, these first two themes converge. The rich man's love for money has bloomed into a callous, self-justifying negligence of other people's needs while living in extravagance or self-indulgence. His lack of mercy toward another human being finds its miserable echo in mercy not being received. Can I say this? That the door to the ark of salvation closes at the death of a human being or when Jesus returns. The door is open, even for the unrighteous rich man. It's open for everyone. But upon that person's death or upon Jesus' return, uh, the, the door is shut and the chasm is set and there will be no crossing from hell to heaven and vice versa. Back to Luke verse 27. And he, the rich man, 
said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be, be they convinced Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see, someone coming back from the dead, other than Jesus, of course, and telling them about the torture of hell will not save anybody. That's why I laugh, actually, at these books that may be true or untrue that somehow give people hope of people coming back from the dead. I don't care about that. Jesus doesn't care about that. You see, what we have today, what his five brothers have had then, what every unbeliever has today is, is Moses and the prophets. You know what he's saying there? Is the gospel the, that was preached through the Old Testament. We have the word of God that declares the, uh, the way of salvation for all of mankind. You see, salvation comes by hearing, and hearing by what? By the word of God. All of humanity has gone and will go their own way, seeking pleasure and fulfillment in all of God's good creation rather than in the good creator. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God, but God being rich in mercy has made us alive in Christ Jesus. And that mercy is still available to every unbeliever, no matter how vile their life is today, no matter how much wrong they've done in the past. You see, Jesus left the luxury of heaven, and he indulged himself in the pleasure of taking on flesh and laying down his life so that all who believe in him would have life. He humbly emptied himself of all his heavenly riches so that we who were poor might become rich. Christian, you and I, who by God's grace have been given everything we need, caps, everything we need for life and godliness, are to employ a faith that works by responding with an overflow of the generosity that we've received to be generous and sacrificial towards others for God's glory. And I want to finish with the three questions. Believer, you who have been arrested by God's grace, you who are recipients of God's mercy, you who own the promise that God will never leave you nor forsake you, Will you strive to live as you should in accordance to God's word or as you could by accumulating wealth? Question number two, will you prioritize people made in the image of God over profit? And question number three, will you use wealth as a blessing for others? rather than besting your lifestyle. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we bless you that, um, that we are recipients of your grace and mercy. And God, we thank you that for our sake, you who were rich became poor so that we who were poor and broken and lost might become rich. And God, I thank you that today, that every human being that's been saved by grace is a possessor of every spiritual blessing, that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. And God, I pray that you would, uh, in the abundance that you've given us, and it's, it's relative in this room, it's relative on this video, but also relatively speaking, we, uh, we are ones who have been given a ton. And God, I pray that you would just help us uh, live as we should, not striving to live as we could. And God, as you have prioritized us and set your eye on us, would you help us prioritize people over money? And God, would you help that all you've, all you've given us, God, would, we just want, would you just give us the courage and the humility to um, just have that generosity flow to others who are in need? So God, thank you for the gospel. God, I pray that, um, that you would just help us be mindful of those neighbors, those that we live in proximity to, who are rich or poor, who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God, in this time, this pandemic time, this physical distancing time, this time where it seems like the curve is going back up, God, would you uh, just remind us of your love for us, and would you give us the courage and the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to go and, uh, and not stop talking about what we've seen and heard for your glory and for the good of your blood-bought people. Amen.